Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 92. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. I wanted to start this episode by saying thank you to all of you for all of the messages that you've been sending to me over email and on Instagram and on the SpeakPipe app, telling me how much this podcast means to you, telling me how much you love the episode that I did with my son, Zane, just two weeks ago. I really wanted to share about my cancer healing journey thus far, and I'm so happy that the episode was helpful to you in some small way. Thank you so much for all of your kind words, your encouragement, and your love. I'd also like to ask you that if you've been finding the podcast helpful and meaningful, that you leave a five-star review with just a few words about how the podcast has impacted you or helped you. Your reviews are the most important way that more people will find the show. And as this podcast continues to grow, it's even more important than ever. So please pause this episode and go to the link in the show notes to go directly to the page to review on Apple Podcasts. You'll have to scroll down to the, about the middle of the page and you'll see write a review in purple. You can click there and it'll take you directly to the screen to add your review. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, so today we continue with our exploration of this month's intention, creativity and our health with my guest, Rhea Frey. Rhea is the award-winning best-selling author of both nonfiction and fiction books. And her latest novel, The Other Year, hits bookstores in August of 2023, just two months from now. Known as the book doula, Rhea helps other writers birth their books into the world. She is a Silver Falchion Awards finalist, was voted Chicago Reader's Best Nonfiction Writer, was Book Pipeline's 2022 Film Adaptation winner, and has been featured in U.S. Weekly, Entertainment Weekly, Glamour, Pop Sugar, Hello Sunshine, Marie Claire, Shape, Hello Giggles, Crime Reads, Writer's Digest, WGN, Today in Nashville, and Talk of the Town. In our conversation, Rhea shares her story of how she became a writer and the health challenge that led to her first published novel. We also discuss how we all are creative, the difference between creating versus consuming versus producing, and how something as simple as journaling is creating its creativity. Rhea also shares about her new book, The Other Year, and her exploration of the drastic polarities that dire circumstances often create in the story of a mother who lives out an alternate outcome to watching her daughter vanish in the waves of an ocean and the processing of emotions that all of us share as humans. Rhea also discusses how creativity is essential for health and healing and shares ways we can all access our creativity and how to nurture creativity every single day. 
I loved everything about my conversation with Rhea because it brought up so many of the things that I've really been thinking about as I've had more time and space for creativity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rhea Frey about storytelling, writing, and the healing journey as we continue our exploration of the connection between creativity and our health. Hi, Rhea. I am so happy to have you here today on the podcast with me. This is an absolute pleasure. It is so great to be here. Well, thank you for doing this. And so for all of the listeners out there, I want to give you a little background of how I know Rhea. I actually met Rhea a few years ago when I was in the midst of thinking about writing a second book. And as you'll find out in this episode and the interview, she is a guide for authors. And so she became my guide for writing a book proposal for my second book, which I got a book deal through that, much of which I really ascribe to her helping me put this whole, I don't know, 100 page document together, which I had no clue how to do a formal book proposal. But she's been a light in my life, not only as a partner in my getting my book deal, but also just as a friend and as somebody I've talked to a lot through this cancer journey. So thank you for all of those things, Rhea. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And I would like to say, though, I feel like you could have totally rocked a book proposal and gotten that (laughs) book deal on your own. You know exactly what you're doing, but you made it so easy to work with because you have so much to say. So it's been an absolute pleasure being alongside you on all of your journey. Yeah. Thank you so much. So I would love to, I mean, we have so much we can talk about, but I really want to start with, you know, how did you decide to become a writer? Like, how did you come to be a writer? Let's start with that. I'd love to hear some background. It's so funny because a lot of writers get asked this question and I always hear people say like, I always wanted to be a writer. And then I, you know, I just did whatever it took to get there. But I actually did not necessarily want to be a writer. I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast when I was younger. I wanted to be an athlete or a veterinarian or, you know, I, I loved school. I had my hand in so many different things, but I actually grew up thinking writing was part of my identity, but like so many other people, I also learned that it was also just a hobby that I couldn't make money at it, that it wouldn't be a viable career option, that a life in the arts while, you know, creative probably Mm -hmm. wasn't going to necessarily put food on the table. So I actually did not really think through all of the pieces and parts of what becoming a published author or making a career as a writer would entail or would mean. And so growing up again, I was very great in school, salutatorian of high school, valedictorian of college. And I had my my pick of colleges, but I actually ended up getting a scholarship for some stories that I had put together to go to Columbia for creative writing. And I really grappled because I was kind of straddling two paths of going more in the health direction of being an athletic trainer to athletes or trying my hand at this creative path. So I did choose that path. And what I learned during those four years of college was that, oh, I can have professors teach me how to write, but I did not have a single class in four years on the business of publishing on what it meant to put your book out into the world, to make money, to read a contract, to know how to navigate this industry. So I 
quickly was thrown into the deep end and realized I didn't really even know after four years, I knew how to write a story, but I did not know what it meant to become an author. And I think that those are two very different things. And that's an important distinction that a lot of people don't understand. No, for sure. And that's actually why I came to you because I'm like, I have no clue how this whole publishing world works because my first book, I self-published. I just did it. And so this is a totally different ballgame. So that's why I really needed some guidance. And I'm a big believer in you go to people who are experts in their fields. That's not my expertise. So I wanted to ask somebody who knew to help me. But let me get back to one thing. So you wrote some stories in high school that then landed you in college and you were then pursuing writing as your field of study. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I growing up, I actually... So my dad is a, is a writer and I always say is, even though he never tried to get published, but he's phenomenal. He's a phenomenal writer, but I actually was introduced to writing uh, via reading first. And I think becoming a voracious reader really whet my appetite for writing, but I actually started out in poetry. Poetry was my first love. I got a, a poem. I won a contest in the third grade for this poem that my dad and I wrote together called Soap Suds. And it was, it was that little like, twinge of like, Ooh, I I can actually write something that people read that really got me interested. So I actually was a journaler, huge journaler. I actually attribute most of my love of writing to journaling. I still have all of my journals. My daughter has poked through some that she probably shouldn't have because I have every single journal from my teenage years. Wow. Um, And then I became a letter writer. I loved writing letters to people. And honestly, if I'm being honest, like romantic letters that I I realized I could make people feel a certain way with words. And so, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, all the writing, I, I would dabble in fiction, but I loved writing essays. I loved writing nonfiction. And when I got that scholarship to Columbia, I actually started my major as a journalism major and then ended up switching it. I love, I love journalism. I dabbled in journalism for years. But for some reason, when I got there, I just decided to switch over to the creative writing department entirely and, you know, started my, my journey. But I wasn't confident that I was going to leave college and be a novelist. I wanted to be, but I didn't understand how I was supposed to get from A to B to C and and get out in the world. So I kind of struggled through college, like thinking, what comes after this? Like, how am I going to survive in the real world? Which really led me then to, I did end up getting a, a book published when I was 22. It was a novel and it was a disaster. The publishing house was a total scam. I learned everything not to do. I never saw a dime from that book. And so that was actually the catalyst where I was like, okay, I want to be in this world. I need to know everything that I can, which is what led me to working at literary agencies, working with publishers, becoming a ghostwriter, trying my hand literally in every facet of the writing world. So next time I wanted to publish a book, I would understand what I was doing. And it took a lot of ups and downs, a lot of failure. I I pivoted from fiction over to nonfiction and got into the health and wellness space and started writing health and wellness books. I could get them traditionally published, but I still wasn't selling them. Um, in any sort of impressive way. I didn't understand how to build a platform. I didn't understand 
what it meant to build a career as an author. And I think that's very important is when you're writing a book, you essentially are an entrepreneur and your book is a product to sell. So it took me a long time, many books, many failures to understand that very, very important detail. And that's what really changed the whole game for me. And it's also when I started working with authors, because like you, you're so accomplished, you, you're an expert in your field, but literally 99.9% of the people who come to me have no clue how this industry works because no one's talking about it. We romanticize it. We're, oh, so-and-so sold a million copies and Oprah got a hold of their book. And it doesn't work like that in the real world. There are exceptions, but that's the only thing we hear about are the exceptions and not actually how it works for most individuals who want to get published. Yeah. This is all fascinating of how you went from being an author and you're still an author. I mean, you've written tons of books. You have a new one coming out, which we're going to talk about in, in a couple minutes. But I want to click back to something that you said earlier is that you were a huge journaler. And I, I want to talk about that because, you know, in my world, in this health and wellness world and the work that I do, journaling is a tool that I suggest to many of my patients and students and my courses. I'm writing about it in my book, you know, that it's a really powerful tool for transformation, for self-transformation, for awareness. And I find it so interesting to hear you talking about it from a creative lens and that that was the start of this creative piece for you of going on to then study further and to create more. Because I think most people, a lot of the people who are probably listening to this podcast because they're listening to a health and wellness podcast may not think of themselves as creative. And, you know, just to backtrack a little, you know, I really wanted to talk to you this month in June because the intention for June is creativity and our health. And it really sort of sparked my interest because as I've had all this time to sit around with a completely blank schedule because everything on my schedule has been canceled, like I got to do something. And I'm a very creative person. My mother's an artist. I've always made cards. I love to do crafts. Like I've always done those things. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll start painting and making some handmade cards, collages, knitting. And I've been doing these things. Well, I started doing them because I was thinking, oh, I'll occupy my mind. I'll busy my mind so I'm not thinking about my work, about the podcast, about the book that I have to write, all these things, write my work projects. And what I've found is that the creativity that that has sparked in me has actually helped me have more energy more optimism to do the health care, self-care practices that I need to do because it's been hard. So that's a long tangent, but I want to talk a little more about that creativity piece and journaling, because I think that that's such a powerful idea for so many people to think about, you know, and say, oh, I'm not creative, but actually you are. If you're a human, guess what? You're creative. We're yeah. creators. That is, that is, we are as beings. And it kills me that we prioritize like everything but our creativity, unless you are, you know, unless you are in the arts or unless you are in a creative field. But if you are living and breathing, you are a creator. And I feel like it was funny. My daughter and I, we were watching some old movie where people used to sit around before phones, before screens. They would sing, they would dance, they would talk or chant or sit around the fire and, 
you know, make things. And we are intrinsically that way. That's what we're, I feel like that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to work with our hands. We're supposed to use our brains and, and create. And instead of being creators, we've become consumers. We consume our social media. We consume emails. We are getting more information on a daily basis than we were ever, ever, ever supposed to hold in our brains. And so I think for a lot of people, they're drained. They don't have any, any energy to create. And for me growing up, you know, I grew up in the eighties. So it was still like that awesome time when you could just go and play and run free. But for me, movement was always creative. Just like I love to read and I love to write movement, health and wellness, you know, was so important to me and putting together a workout was the, the tippy top of my creativity. I would put together the most insane workouts and really felt that creative fire. And then I would move my body and that felt creative. And everything that I would do would come from this well that I was actually full from. And as I've gotten older and my work is yes, writing, but then I help others with their, you know, bird their projects into the world. I don't have a lot of reserves left over. So one hack actually now, like journaling is, is a wonderful tool, but I actually find when I do something outside my comfort zone, like I'm not great at drawing, but when I draw, when I, and I've said this before on podcasts, but my favorite tip for filling my creative cup is actually turning my phone off or leaving it at home setting out on a walk with just me and my brain and my thoughts and just processing and thinking and not about the to-dos, but allowing my mind to wander because we used to, I don't know about you, but I used to sit in my bedroom as a kid and I would stare at the ceiling and I would listen to music and I would just think. I think thinking is so important as well because that's where those ideas come from or you'll be in the shower, you know, and, and you get like your next great idea. And we don't prioritize the time to think, to process, to wander, to imagine. And I think it's such a detriment and we should totally flip-flop our priorities as human beings because when you are in that creative space, that's when we manifest. I mean, I'm a huge believer in manifesting what you want and you can't do that if you are constantly drained and only tuned into your, your daily to-dos. Yeah, I agree. And and a little bit more on that, you know, this idea of creating versus consuming. I've also th- been thinking a lot about creating versus producing. Because if you are a creator, like you and I both are, we both create education, we help people create, right? We're, I mean, I'm putting content out on my, you know, Instagram, and I'm writing newsletters, and I have this podcast, I'm writing a book, like I'm creating that at what point does it become producing versus that creativity piece? And I really have been thinking a lot about that. Like, what is the reason that I'm doing every single thing that I'm doing? I want to help other people. I want them to learn. I want to educate them. I want to share all the stuff that I know from, you know, decades of studying (laughs) in the same way that you do. And so I think you bring up a really good point of, you know, creating versus consuming versus producing. Um, It's just something that I've been thinking a lot about. I love that so much because that's exactly where I am. And to be quite honest, I hit like so many people, the story, you hear the same stories where someone hits burnout and I totally did. I was doing too much. I had too many clients. I was still putting out books, you know, 
raising my child, trying to keep everything like together and I couldn't do it. So I actually stopped everything. I stopped my podcast. I like, so I have two separate sites. I'm doing a big rebrand relaunch, but I just stopped. I stopped putting out newsletters. I stopped putting out anything. I got off Instagram for a while and um, just really sat with, like you just said, what is, I'm putting out these things, but what is the purpose? And am I just adding to the noise? Am I just doing it for what? Because I've always run my business, you know, helping other writers. I run my business very atypical from other people. I don't market. I don't advertise on social media. I am referral word of mouth only. And it's really caused me to think like, okay, well, why do I need to put out content on Instagram if that's not where I'm getting right. business from, you know? And and really, really sitting and thinking about what what my mission is, what I'm trying to do. And I've always been someone that wants to do things differently than everyone else. And I want to run my business the same way. I want to book the same way. I don't want to do it in a way feels an alignment and an integrity with myself. And I think that's where a lot of us struggle. And I see it just from the author side of things, because, you know, when, if you want to put out a book, it's like, well, how many followers do you have? How many, you know, how big's your platform? And it's all this kind of really weird rinse and repeat one size fits all. And I think everybody's getting really tired of it. It's too much. There's too much to consume. There's too much to produce. And I think it's really vital to sit in the stillness sometimes and stop doing, just stop doing and and see what actually comes up. And that's the hardest thing I think for any of us to do is to be still and silent and listen to your own intuition or your own voice without the phone in your hand, or we're so uncomfortable with the silence. But I, to me, I feel like that's where I've actually found the gifts lately and the answers. And I still don't have all of them, but I know that I needed to press pause on everything. And guess what? The world didn't fall apart. It didn't. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, no one even noticed that I wasn't doing yep. anything. And I do a lot of things that mean a lot to me and, and did get to refill my creative cup. So I think that's important sometimes to just analyze like what you are putting out there and why, and if it feels good and if it doesn't, then change it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's a really good point. Uh, I want to go back to just something that you shared with me offline about your yeah. first book that you wrote um, and sort of what happened there and how that happened. Can you tell us a little bit because it's related to health and it's it's a really inspiring and beautiful story that I would love for you to share. Oh, I would love to share it. It's fun because I don't get to share it. Well, it's not fun. It's not a fun story, but it's such a part of my story and I don't really ever talk about it anymore. So I grew up as a as an athlete. I literally did every sport you can imagine, but I was a gymnast for about 13 years. I was a sprinter, track and field, and then I pivoted to boxing. And luck grew up with boxing. My dad loved boxing, my brother loved boxing, and I moved to Chicago for college and found this gym and found this boxing coach and fell literally fell in love with the sport and was really good at it. And, you know, I was 18, 19 years old and started boxing constantly. I was getting ready for my first competition and I started getting these massive headaches. I actually got hit in the eye during a sparring class. And from the moment I got hit, there was just this really weird pulsing, pounding headache. And 
I knew something was wrong. I knew something was off. And I told my boxing coach and he was like, you know, you might want to go just get that checked out. You could have a contusion or a concussion. So I went to, to, uh, I had to actually (laughs) set up a CT scan. I'd never had a surgery. I've I've never, I was a healthy kid. So they, they do this scan. They took images of my brain and I, you know, as a freshman in college, I'm living in a dorm with three other girls. And I get a call that is like, literally the technician said, you have a three and a half inch mass on the left side of your brain in the parietal lobe. It is on the verge of hemorrhaging. You need to come in for an MRI immediately. If you fall down, if you get hit, you're dead. And it was just such a jarring moment because I was literally about to go compete. And if I had gotten hit in the head one more time, lights out. So I get an, getting an MRI to confirm um, this, this mass that was on the verge of hemorrhaging. It was in the arachnoid membranes. My brain, they think I probably had it for a long time that because I was so active, these membranes split, filled with fluid over time, and then actually compress my brain completely flat on the left side. And so skipping through some of the details, I I did end up getting brain surgery my freshman year of college during spring break. Where this mass was, was very atypical. So they actually said they do not know, you know, they didn't know what was going to happen until they got in there. It was horrifying. It was a very terrifying experience. But when they removed this mass, so I did opera surgery, there actually wasn't another option for me. It wasn't like, hey, we can sit and watch it. It was, it was a very critical point to remove this. And so when they removed it, it actually did hemorrhage. They got it out just in time. It was situated under a very aggravated vein. My skull was as thin as an eggshell from the pressure of this mass. And so they ended up putting four titanium plates that are shaped like little snowflakes and 16 screws, uh, 42 staples. And when I woke up, I just, I what they didn't prepare me for, I would be in intensive care that, you know, I, the biggest risk factor after his aneurysms and the, the mass can grow back and which a lot of, a lot of masses in the brain get surgery, they grow back, you know? Um, so it was very terrifying. And during that time, so it was spring break. I was only in the hospital for a few days and then I was back in my dorm and I, I just felt so displaced. I was like, I just went through this, this massive ordeal. I had to get post-op MRIs for four years and stay in very close contact with my neurosurgeon. But luckily, knock on wood, everything was clean after that. I didn't have to go, you know, there was no like true post-operative care other than really making sure that there was no residue and that it did not grow back. But that surgery led to the story that would become my first novel. And I wrote it during my very brief recovery and it actually, that story gave me the courage to even try to, to put out, you know, put a book universe. I don't think any, you know, 20, 21, 22 year old really knows what they're getting themselves into with publishing a book that young, but that whole process was horrifying. Number one. I mean, it was so scary. I thought I was going to die. They, before they operated, they told me to say goodbye, literally goodbye to my family because they just didn't know what was going to happen. 
But I will say a funny little tidbit. They almost had me in a twilight state. And I remember my neurosurgeon during surgery making a joke that women's brains were so much smaller than men's. And when I woke up, it's the first thing I asked him. I said, did you make a joke about women's brains being smaller than men's? And he had, (laughs) which was not great. But, But it was luckily, I mean, I was very lucky that we found it when we did, that boxing actually saved my life, that, you know, it's been 20 plus years and I've only had to have like one MRI later in life um, because I started getting some weird symptoms and just making sure that all was always good. But being such a health and wellness advocate, I don't like that I have these titanium plates and screws and I had an opportunity to get them out about four years post-op and I didn't. Um, but it was, it was just a very fast and furious, crazy ordeal. And, you know, it's made me very aware and very grateful for health and wellness. And now my, my best friend, her 19 year old daughter is dealing with a grade two brain tumor. So it, you know, it is cancer, but they are attributing it to the blue light toxicity, um, that so many of these kids are, are you know, engaging with on a daily basis. So I've become extremely passionate about circadian rhythm work, about blue light protection, about really using three things that are free every day, which is oxygen. So really focusing on breath work, magnetism, grounding yourself to the earth and sunlight, which is, I think one of the best pieces of medicine and it's free that we can regulate ourselves and, and really prevent a lot of these things that are happening from light pollution and, and, and blue light, blue yeah. light toxicity. No, I agree with everything you said. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that story. The question that comes up for me is how did you find the will to be writing a book during that time? I mean, you know, you just had brain surgery quite literally, and here you are, you write a novel and it gets picked up by a publisher. Tell me, why did you decide to do that? You know, I think it probably honestly was a coping mechanism for me. So again, going back to the journaling, I actually, I would always process that way. So I couldn't process anything that happened to me, whether it was real or, you know, I'm, I'm writing a fun story until I wrote it down. And actually, you know, I, I journaled and dabbled in writing for a while, but it wasn't until that happened, something that traumatic that I just naturally went to the page and I wasn't yet ready to really journal about it. But I mean, if you go back and you read that book, it's so autobiographical. I mean, it's about the brain surgeries in it, boxings in it. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous plot. The plot is ridiculous. We'll say, (laughs) but but I think that that's how I, how I coped is just putting words to paper. And I wanted to, I've always been a doer and which again, I said before, like sitting still is the hardest thing for me, but, but I felt really motivated because I didn't, I couldn't box. I couldn't, I ended up, I did end up um, continuing to compete after brain surgery, which was not smart. I do not recommend it. But for a period of time, I could not really work out. I couldn't do any of the things that I love to do so much. So I, I funneled it into another passion. I also was in therapy during that time. That was mandatory for me to have to go to a therapist for about three months after and really, really process everything, which I think was very important too. Um, but yeah, it was, it was natural to me to, to turn to the page because that was, 
again, it was the best coping mechanism that I could find at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's such an interesting thing you're touching on is that these creative pursuits, painting, writing, and again, it doesn't have to be at the level of you, Rhea, where you're publishing books. I mean, you're a very, very accomplished author. You've published numerous books. For most of us listening, that's not what we're going to do. But that doesn't mean that writing and painting and creating, doing all these things, knitting, whatever it is, they are all these creative outlets that can be so incredibly powerful. They're powerful tools along our healing journeys because they do allow us in some way to get a little still. I mean, you're moving, you're writing, you're, but you get into this flow state, right? Yeah, I know if you're, flow right, state. this yes. flow yes. state, this meditative state, and you start to get this information from everywhere in the universe, you know, whatever you want to call that. I have found for myself that that happens to me, whether I'm journaling or if I'm, you know, painting. And again, I am not an artist like my mother. My mother is a very accomplished artist. Her art is all over my home. I don't have any of my own paintings up, but I do that. And I find that that has helped me a lot with coping with a lot of things. And so when this whole cancer journey started, I actually put down the book I was writing because that was a little too intellectual for me to deal with. And I started doing other things to create. And I've found now that I'm ready, you know, probably in the next few weeks to start writing again and finish that book. But I think that it's a really important takeaway is that these creative pursuits and, you know, how, however beginner you think you are or advanced, they are powerful tools for healing. Ugh, yeah. Right. You know, what we were talking about with issue with creative pursuits today, I feel like is going back to what I said in the beginning is there's just so many other things to choose from today. Like if I can choose between sitting down to journal or scrolling through Instagram, Nine times out of 10, people are going to choose Instagram. They're going to choose to fill their brains with things that aren't going to help them on their healing journey. So one of my hacks and tips is even if like you're just going to take a bath and read a book, which I think can be so nourishing and it doesn't have to always be about you doing something, but is setting the right environment. I do Palo Santo or burn incense or put on some sort of, you know, healing music or just getting your environment right. Like even if, you know, there's such a great tip about like things you hate to do, like cannot stand doing taxes. I loathe it, every fiber of my being. But if I put on the right music, light a candle, like get everything in my environment, in my sacred space, then I can actually feel different. Because I sometimes think like if we don't have time to, to tackle these creative pursuits, what we can control, the only thing we can can control is how we feel. So I prioritize feeling good every day, no matter what. And that's not easy when you have kids and partners and things go wrong, but really, really prioritizing how you feel matters. And starting the day, once I, once I flip flopped, you know, getting up like most people and grabbing my phone and getting on with the to do's, I don't do that anymore. I have a very like, to some people, it probably sounds insane my (laughs) mornings, but it's changed my whole life. And, you know, getting up, I do not wake up with an alarm clock. I have a weird ability to tell myself I need to get up at whatever time and I'll naturally wake up. I am very, my husband and I are very particular about our light at night. I wear these blue blocking glasses. I have red lenses that help me sleep so well before bed that mimic firelight. I get up in the morning, you know, I 
drink my hot water with lemon and sea salt. I ground. So I go outside. I have a little tiny home. That's an art studio, my, my writing studio, my backyard. I walk back there. I stare at the sun. Literally the first thing I do, that is the light that I'm getting into my eyes. It's not artificial. I sit outside and I do my breath work and or meditation. Um, And literally it's about one to two hours before I ever even think of grabbing my phone or looking at my phone. When we look at that, into that light, into that phone, first thing in the morning, we signal the wrong hormones and it just starts the day off in a totally bad way. So just making, I don't know, making those little tweaks and, and changes so that you feel good and feel better in your day. So when you feel better, you might be more inspired to to use your time in a way that's not passing time. And I think that's what we've all started to do is we're just like passing the time where these little robots and my husband, who's a breathwork facilitator is reading a book and he just read this stat that was horrifying. As humans, we're 0.000001% conscious and the rest of everything that we do is subconscious. So we are all robots, just, you know, Conditioned to the past, conditioned to what we did yesterday, conditioned to think what we have thought before. So to be really aware and awake and making conscious choices, we have to do different things. And to do different things, we have to stop. I mean, again, I know we can't live a screen-free life, but we are constantly fed information and advertising and what to think and how to feel. And to me, I think like being truly healthy does come from stillness. It comes from connecting to the earth, connecting to yourself. And that often includes putting things down. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything that you said. And I think such an important point of what you're saying is that, you know, so much of what we are taking in is being fed to us, right? How much of that is us making conscious choices, right? That's the first question. But the second is, is that so many of these creative pursuits, these things that you've talked about, whether it's meditation or breath work, grounding on the earth, drinking some lemon water, whatever it is, right? All of these practices that I talk about on this podcast every single week and in my book and I'm writing about, these are all ways actually that you connect back with yourself, but you also connect with a universal intelligence. You're connecting with your subconscious, right? And when you start to bring that subconscious information, that higher information from another source, from the universe, you will be amazed at what will start to happen in your conscious, aware, material life, because you have a different source of information to draw from. It's always there. It's available to everyone. It's just, are you going to ask to pull from it? Are you going to do things to pull from it? And that is where I think this whole idea of creativity comes in is that, you know, creativity is, I think, essential for our health, quite literally, because of what you just said, because you are actually tapping into this unconscious, um, universal information, source of information that will help you in so many ways in whatever you're doing on this earth in this lifetime to help you even fulfill your dharma. You know, I can get really esoteric about this, but I think it's, it's all connected. And even back to your point about setting the environment, right, to influence how you feel when you are creating or working or cooking or anything, it's all connected, right? Our environment, I always talk about this, environment can create toxic load. 
it can also take away toxic loads. So when you're working and you know writing or doing your emails in a beautiful, clean space with a candle or some flowers in view, or you're cooking in a clean kitchen that's organized, right? It makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference into how your body is responding to that, how your senses are responding to it, how your soul is responding to it. So it's all really, it's, it's so connected in so many ways. So there's so many things you brought up, but you know, those are the couple that really, that stuck out to me to talk about. So I want to switch gears here because I really would love to talk about your new book that's coming out in August and it is called The Other Year. And I've read a little bit about the background of it, but you know, your, your new book is, first of all, there's a couple of interesting things that I wanted to talk about. It's set in a wellness community in Atlanta. So I want to ask you about like, how did you choose that? What I find so interesting about you, Rhea, is that there's so much crossover with health and wellness and your writing that is fiction. And I know it probably stems from your interests, but I think that's also why I was so drawn to you because I know that about you. And every time we talk, these are the topics that we talk about and you you know so much. But one thing that you wrote about in your new book, which was really interesting, it was like kind of like a sliding doors, you know, moment in which the character, the main character lives out an alternate outcome to watching her daughter go through a really traumatic uh, thing in the ocean. And you sort of explore this idea of polarities, drastic polarities, you know, that these very difficult circumstances can create. And it's, and it's really bringing me back to something I have been thinking about a lot. And I just actually did a podcast last week about this with my son, Zane, about this idea of but and also of holding two, you know, polar emotions at once, like having these polarities. Can you talk about sort of like, where did this idea come from to explore these polarities and how that sort of played out in your book? Absolutely. So, I mean, I love playing with time or, you know, reading about time and these different dimensions or alternate realities, because I feel like we're, we're just scratching the surface of what is possible as human beings. But I didn't start thinking about any of this really in the polarities, especially around emotions and grief and love and how intertwined they all are until I became a mother. And I have been very public about my struggles to become a parent, not physically getting pregnant, but I never planned on becoming a mother. I wanted to live this like, you know, creative, you know, wonderless life. And when I met my husband, I sat him down. We'd only been dating for a few months. And I was like, Hey, you want to be a parent? I want this for you, but it's not in the cards for me. This is why. And if this is what you want, I want you to have it, but it'll be with someone else. And he looked at me and was like, I choose you. And so we had planned to, to not become parents. We had a very adult conversation about it. And I always joke that my daughter figured out how to mess with science and reproductive health and wormed her way in there when it should have been physically impossible for me to actually get pregnant with this child. And she, I always joke that she just chose to come into our lives for this very particular reason. And then she made me go through a 52 hour labor in order to bring her into this world to ensure that she would be an only child. (laughs) But, you know, taking on that role 
as mother, when I had not, when I say I hadn't thought about becoming a mother, never once in my whole life, I was 30 when I had her, never thought about it once, never, it never crossed my mind. I was married before, got married very young at 22 with my starter husband, never came up then. So it is something that I had actually, I just knew that it wasn't, it wasn't going to be my path. And so when I became a mother, she it was the most natural thing in the beginning and she fit so beautifully, but it was also really hard. And I decided early on, I was going to talk about all of it. I was going to talk about the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows. And it wasn't until she turned about five or six that I got this idea for what I really consider truly became my debut novel in 2018 called Not Her Daughter. And I I discovered that when I wrote fiction, I liked writing about scenarios that often are the hardest for parents to wrap their heads around. I wanted to work through my emotions and my fears as a parent on the page. So in the other year, it is about the single mother, Kate Baker, who takes her nine-year-old daughter, Olivia, on a vacation, and they go to the beach every year. It's the first day of vacation. Her daughter's in the ocean. The mom gets a text message, looks down for a moment. When she looks up, her daughter's gone. So the book does split into two timelines, one where her daughter pops back up, everything's normal. They go on about their year together as, you know, parent child. And in the other year, her daughter does not resurface and she must deal with the worst thing a parent can ever grapple with. And though I have not lost a child, people lose children every day. People experience the worst things one can imagine every day. But I feel like a lot of times in fiction specifically, we try to kind of go around it. We don't go through it. And grief is one of the most uh, everyday experiences that we all, that we all live. And I think it can also lead to such transformation and such change, just like, as you know, cancer journeys or someone losing someone or, you know, the seemingly worst thing that could possibly happen actually ends up bringing you to a new place with new information, with new insight. And so I wanted to ask the question, you know, would this character end up in the same place that she was destined to be in no matter what, or did this grief and tragedy send her on an entirely different trajectory? And it was, it was the most challenging book I've ever written because my daughter at the time was nine. I used a lot of my daughter's quirks and idiosyncrasies in this character. And I mean, I would be writing, (laughs) it's just bawling uncontrollably as I had to move through this and imagine losing the person that I love most in this world. So it wasn't, it wasn't an easy book to, to write, but I've always been interested in the polarities of, again, just human beings, human emotions, human, the human journey and what, what we go through. And I've never explored it quite like I have with this one, but I, I'm so excited to see how readers um, receive it because ultimately it is a positive story. And you asked about the wellness community. So the book takes place in a couple of different locations. So it takes place in Nashville. It takes place in Blue Mountain Beach, Florida. And then this, yes, this wellness kind of agri-hood, self-sustainable community outside of Atlanta called Serenby, Georgia. And my husband and I just stumbled upon this place that it's like something out of a movie. It is, again, this little self-contained community that has everything that you need at your fingertips. 
it's so beautiful. You know, I'm literally, you walk down the street and they're like butterflies, like attacking your face and like flowers. And, but again, I'm also a thriller writer. So my first thought was like, okay, how many bodies are buried in backyards in this community? Because this is too perfect, but, but it just seemed like the perfect location to set part of Kate Baker's story there. And it is very wellness. Um, it is very wellness oriented in that it's truly a free community. Kids run wild. You're connected to nature. It is, it's almost like a throwback to the way things used to be where, where kids could be in a really safe space and just go wild and wonder and get lost in the woods and, and still be, you know, still be very safe, but be connected to the people that matter, to the community, to each other and to yourself. So I thought it was a cool location for a book. Yeah, no, those are amazing. So, so many things about your process here, because again, it's sort of circling back to this idea we've talked about already. It sounds like writing for you is also a way for you to process so many of your emotions, your thoughts, and to move through whatever you're going through on your journey, which is all a healing journey, I'm convinced, yes, you know, yes. whether you call it or not, whether you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis or, you know, a bad stomach ache, it's all part of our journey, right? And so I find it so interesting that you are so open and aware of, I mean, thank you for sharing about your daughter and your, you know, choice to not want to be a mother and then what happened for you. Because I don't think most women will talk about that. They don't, Right. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit that. And it's hard. So thank you for sharing that. Um, how would you say being a mother has shifted the way that you work and shifted your writing? Because you're writing about you just told us about how it's influenced like the actual writing of the book, like the contents of the book. But how has it shifted you as a person? Well, I mean, in every way possible. So you know, I, when she was, so when, when my daughter turned five, that's when the writing career really took off, even though I'd been at it for, you know, close to 20 years. And at the same time, we decided to homeschool her as if, you know, things weren't, life wasn't yeah. hard enough. Let's, let's just do that. Let's just throw that on top of it. But, but then we quickly discovered that that was not going to be in her best interest for, you know, me to teach her or recreate school. So we found a wonderful hybrid option that she's there three days a week. And then we have her four days and it's, it's really lovely. It's been that way for five years, but trying to be a creative. So being an author is one thing. And I think a lot of people, I want to, I want to clear up a stereotype because I think a lot of people think, God, you're a writer and you just like sit around and get to like, <laughs> you know, write for hours. And it, no, I've never been able to do that. I've always, I am the main breadwinner in my family. I've always had to juggle multiple things at once. So my writing has always been in a bubble. I write very fast and, and furious. With the other year, it's a book that came to me in a single moment when my daughter was at the beach. This whole story came to me at once. And so I have to be very strategic about how I work, how I mother, making time for my romantic relationships, making time for my friendships. And I'm very verbal in the fact that I get very overwhelmed because I feel like modern day life is just too much. I chose to be a writer to write, not to be out there doing all these things and killing myself and, you know, 
It's just become something else like so many other professions. So mothering, you know, figuring out how to balance all of this has been very difficult, but my daughter is so incredible in that we've always had an open dialogue, all three of us in our household. And she knows that my passions and my career, just like Alex's, my husband's, are just as important as as she is to us too, that we we want her to see her parents going after what they really want to do and not saying like, oh, you got to grow up and have a normal life and a normal job. My daughter is like so anti-traditional and will, she just, she is her own human having her own experience. So it's, I don't, I don't have the answers to all of it. Every day looks different, but really trying to make sure that we are prioritizing each other, our art, that we are always communicating. And it's really messy sometimes. I mean, I'm sitting here talking about having a sacred space and my house is a disaster because she's so, she's so messy and she knows that. And we talk about it, but I can't think straight unless my, my nest is in order. So we are constantly like pushing, pulling, but it's always an open dialogue and, and trying not to, I mean, as you know, like being a parent today specifically, there's just so much coming at us all the time and really focusing on being the best human that she can be, whatever that means to her is priority number one. And, you know, it, there's just no, there's no right or wrong way to do it. But I think us really tuning into each other and, and doing the best we can is, is all the all yeah. that any of us can do at the end of the day. No, you know? Absolutely. And, and we as women are always juggling so many roles and responsibilities that, you know, it is a challenge and it can make your head spin. And sometimes it's just like, oh, I don't even know how I can do all these things. Well, we're not supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so what are some of the things, the practices, and you mentioned a couple, but what are the practices and rituals that you come back to as a way to fuel your creative process? And maybe they're attached to health. I mean, it sounds like they are, but what are some of those? Yeah. I mean, health. so I have this little gratitude journal that, and I mean, I'm, I do think a gratitude practice is, is so important, even if it's two seconds a day, but I was gifted this little five minute gratitude practice. So you do an AM and a PM. And, you know, like I said, I do have my morning routine and I think just shifting, I'm a morning person. I, I love the mornings. So I realized that was going to be the time before I got into all the to do's to really set the tone for my day. So all of that from not looking at my phone to making sure my feet are in the, in the ground to breathing, to taking a moment with myself, to writing really quickly in my five minute journal, that is a non-negotiable in the day. Not that it's become a checklist. I think a lot of people listen to a lot of health and wellness podcasts or, you know, and then they add these things. Oh, I got to try this and I got to do this, but no, do feel into the day. Like if I get up and I'm like, "Mm, I don't want to do a 20 minute breath session this morning, then I won't do it. But, but okay. So once I have that, then during the pandemic, one of the best habits, my husband and I created, I think is what we call our coffee chat our morning coffee chat. So before he rushes off or my daughter rushes off or I rush off, uh, my again, my husband's a breathwork facilitator, so he goes and does kind of the same thing in the morning. He has a little tiny home outside. I have a little tiny home. <laughs> we go to our separate spaces. Then I make our very high maintenance Chemex coffee, 
And we sit preferably outside facing the sun. And we talk for, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, not about to do's, but just checking in and connecting with each other first thing. And we have done that for the past three years. And it's really changed the game for our relationship. So taking those quiet moments, I always try to find some time to figure out what's going to nourish me during the day. So whether that is we have an infrared sauna, we'll do some sauna time. We just got a pool. My daughter loves to swim. So taking a swim, moving my body in some way, sitting with a book at the end of the day, we like to play games. We, our favorite game lately is Bananagrams and we'll put on some music and play a game. My daughter loves to draw. So she'll ask if I want to draw with her. Well, you know, just, just coming together. It's always the quiet things really make such a difference and not getting a bunch of stuff done. I've really tried to, to shift that instead of like, I got to accomplish this or I got to do this. I'm in my forties now. So basically I want everybody to just leave me alone and for me to do what I want to do. So I really, really try to check in and see what's best for me today. What's best for my family and what's going to make me feel good at the end of the day. And that might sound selfish to some people, but it's, it's meant a kind of quieter life and putting the phone away. So I put my phone away before the sun goes down. I don't look at my phone again. I really am pretty nuts about the circadian rhythm health. So that alone, not returning text messages, not looking at my phone, not getting on any sort of social media. I've taken most apps off my phone as well. I actually really don't even want a smartphone and I'm looking into other options. But when you take things off of your, your phone, you realize how many times you reach for it just because it's a habit, not because you need to. So really trying to just make those little tweaks during the day um, to make sure that I feel good and healthy and centered and grounded in this very crazy, often unhealthy, toxic world that we unfortunately exist in. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I think what I'm what I'm hearing, what what's coming up for me is that you've really sort of created a life that is your life and creativity and what you do for a quote living is part of your life. I think part of what goes on in Western culture is that work and life, like, you know, they talk about work-life balance, which is a complete myth. It's completely bullshit, but you know, work and life are always put at odds with each other. It's like one or the other and you have to balance them. But what if life is just work is part of life, right? Exactly. (laughs) And I I have always been, so I'm never someone that believe, I know that you have to do what you have to do and you have to make money. Right. Mm -hmm. But I decided early on, I'm never going to work a job that I don't actually love and want to do. I was a personal trainer for 15 years. I owned a gym before I, you know, kind of got into the, the writing space but what I do with clients, though it can be a lot and it can be stressful or writing books and launching books can be very stressful as well. But there's when I am doing it and I am in flow, it never feels like work. It's all the other stuff that we have decided is just part of life. That's where the stress comes from for me. It's not, it's not necessarily work. And I think that's so important to like, look at the work that you're doing in the world and, and ask yourself why, and if it does make you feel good and if it's what you want to be doing, and then also do that for every other thing that you were 
doing in your day, if it's not serving you and, and adding to, to how you want to feel, get rid of it. It it's, there are so many things that we could probably get rid of that we would never ever miss. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. It's this, this great idea of creating a life that includes your work, not is separate or at the sort of mercy of your work. Like, oh, I get to live life if I finish my work, that kind of thing. Oh God, no. And I've been very (laughs) guilty of that. Like where I love to work. So it can be a very slippery slope where I'm like, oh my God, I've been behind this computer for 15 hours today, like working on other people's stuff. So there does have to be that balance. And also, you know, figuring out the time away from work that it is fun. I think, you know, we talked about creativity, but play is creative too. So I go and jump on the trampoline with my daughter. We'll go rollerblading. We'll, you know, just, it's usually movement for me because that feels like play, but, or playing a game of tag or doing something silly. Um, humans are meant to play. And I think play should be just as important as work, just as important as creativity. It can be inclusive and not just this like thing that you think about once in a while. Yeah. And so for writer's block, if there are people who are listening, who are aspiring writers and they're having writer's block, what would be your number one suggestion to them? Go do something else. Like that's honestly what I do. I mean, again, I love the walks where Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything and processing, but yeah, do go do something else, something fun, something you enjoy. Even like, sometimes I'll be like cooking a meal with, I mean, my husband's the cook in the family, but like, and then I'll, or I'll talk, I'll have, go have a talk with a friend and then I'll get hit with this amazing idea. But yes, stepping away from the page. I think if I've never once sat in front of a blank page for more than like two seconds, that's not true. But if I'm like really struggling, I don't force it. Right. Creativity is a, is a hard thing to force. So I have learned over the years to, it comes to me in bursts and I could work on it for three days in a row and then not touch it for a week. And that works for me. So figuring out what works for you and if, if you're blocked, yeah, just go, go do yeah. something else. Yeah. Amazing advice. Do you have time just for a couple of speed round questions? Yes. I love speed round questions. Fun questions that, you know, that way the listeners can learn a little bit more about you. Complete this sentence. Writing is. Well, for me, writing is life. Mm, yeah, I would agree for me too. I love writing. Yeah. What is one myth about writing that we need to change? Oh. Oh, <laughs> that you're just going to write, you just need to write a good story and that it'll find its home or that you'll find your readers. I think though that can be true. If you want to write and put your work out into the world, whether you're doing it yourself or with someone else, learn everything you can yeah. about the industry. Selling a book is so much more work than writing the book, I think. Mm-hmm. So figuring out what feels good to you and how you want to move your work out into the world and ask as many questions as you can. I think we have to start changing the narrative around like what it means to be a successful writer. Because I think a lot of that is bullshit. What's, what's out there currently and what we think. Yeah. What is something that people often get wrong about you? Oh gosh. Probably that I'm just like, so tenacious and go, go, go all the time like that. Yeah, sure. But I'm actually, I am such an introvert. I've learned that I'm a little bit more of an extroverted introvert with writing, but like, I really love my alone time. And I, uh, yeah, I need, I need a lot of time to kind of recharge and I'm not just, 
I'm not doing all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I'm actually kind of lazy in my, (laughs) as I'm getting older. Um, So yeah, I like to sit and just kind of be. I think sitting and being is a good thing. I'm in that camp too. What is one thing you're deeply grateful about right now? Oh gosh, my health, my child, my home. I mean, lately it's, it's the, it's the everyday things that I'm grateful for and that I'm, I'm really in the sun, the mm-hmm. birds, all of it. I just, every day I'm just grateful for it all as cheesy as that sounds. Okay. This is a hard one because you're an author. What book is on your nightstand right now? Oh, okay. So I have literally, I'm not, I'm not joking. I have like 20 books, but I just picked up page boy by Elliot page, mm-hmm. uh, which is a memoir. It is so fantastic. Such a beautiful story. The writing is phenomenal. It's kind of just a collection of mm-hmm. essays, but mm-hmm. yeah, for people who don't know, Elliot was formerly Ellen Page, an actress who starred in Juno, made a transition. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is just, I, I'm like devouring this book. It's it's so, so beautifully written. Such a, a wonderful story. Yeah, I just ordered it. So I have no, we'll, so we'll have to talk about it. Um, so good. Yeah. So this feels like a really good place to sort of end our time together. We have talked about so many things. You've been so generous with your knowledge and your personal stories. And so I just have one last question. If I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, mm. what comes up for you? Oh, God, that is such a great question. What comes up for you when you say that? Like, what does that mean to you? I think that's going within and reconnecting yeah. with yourself. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you said something earlier that just really sticks with me. Like our, I think to be alive is a healing journey that it's, that it's all about healing, that we're constantly healing. One thing I think I said to you on your journey was, you know, when anybody gets a diagnosis or they get this or that, we're not sick, we're healing. And I mean, we're on our path to, to healing and feeling better and getting better. Um, yeah. And I just kind of come back to that. Like it's, it is all one big healing journey. I think we're, we're in the process of it all the time and we get to choose if, if that's what we're doing. Um, so I think, I mean, that's not really answering the question, but I think it, it just has to be part of our everyday lives. And I really hope that we start to see the shift where that's what people are prioritizing versus all of these other little things that are actually detracting from from healing and health. Yeah. Rhea, thank you so much for doing this with me. I have learned so much from you just in life, in our work together, but even on this podcast, I've been jotting down notes. I'll have to go back and think (laughs) about them. But thank you so much for sharing with my community. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.